All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 48 for March 2023. Shattering the Glass Ceilings, Three More Women Pioneers. is a National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East at Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. March is Women's History Month. Dr. Nellie Nielsen was one of the best and best-known medieval scholars in the world, but she struggled to climb every rung to the top during her remarkable career. Sarah York Stevenson was a self-trained Egyptologist, a founder of the Penn Museum, and a leader in women's rights, and a popular newspaper columnist who gained respect from colleagues around the world. Her story is told by fellow Laurel Hill Cemetery docent Pat Rose. And Elizabeth Head Fetter, older sister to Maverick inventor Howard Head, was writing under the pen name of Hannah Lees, about topics like masturbation and women's extramarital affairs in the prudish 1940s, several years before the Kinsey Report was released. This trio of remarkable women are the subjects of this month's All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, Shattering the Glass Ceilings, Three More Women Pioneers. The front page of the New York Times for 10 September 1884 had a story about a cholera outbreak in Naples. There was another story about the American Association for the Advance of Science, which had chosen its new officers at a national meeting in Philadelphia. But there was no mention of a brand new organization, the American Historical Association which had been formed on the 9th of September, upstate in New York, at the United States Hotel in Saratoga Springs, a resort community of less than 10,000 people. 
The proposal for this professional group of and for historians had come from Daniel Coit Gilman, organizer and president of the Johns Hopkins University, formed in Baltimore only eight years before in the centennial year of the United States, 1876. Johns Hopkins was the first modern research-oriented university in the United States. Herbert Baxter Adams, an associate professor of history at Hopkins, had taken the lead in planning this meeting. By 1884, there were more than 850 colleges and universities in the country, but only 15 full-time professors of history and five full-time assistant professors. The number of graduate students in history was less than 30. Nonetheless, the American Historical Association was a success and by its second year had a membership of 220 members, including a former U.S. President, Rutherford B. Hayes, who had been a founding member, and future U.S. President, Woodrow Wilson. The AHA has always been non-discriminatory in accepting members. The original Constitution of 1884 said simply, any person approved by the Executive Council may become a member by paying $3. Approval was always pro forma. A century after its founding, historian Arthur H. Link wrote, To my knowledge, no person who has applied for membership in the AHA has been turned down on grounds of race, gender, religion, national origin, or political views. Famed African-American scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, the first black Ph.D. in the United States, was on the program at AHA annual meetings in 1891 and 1909. But the organization's first black president was not elected until 1979. The AHA had Jewish members from the day of its founding, but since it drew members from colleges and universities, the anti-Semitism of those days made it foolhardy for Jewish undergraduates to study history, as they would be prevented from taking academic positions at institutes of higher learning. As America's anti-Semitic walls crumbled in the 1940s and 1950s, Jewish historians began playing a larger role in the AHA, and the organization's first Jewish president served in 1953. Women have been members of the AHA from the beginning, including three of the original members. Their membership was even mentioned specifically in the original constitution. In the opinion of the council, there is nothing in the Constitution of the American Historical Association to prevent the admission of women into the association upon the same qualifications as those required of men. There were quite straightforward reasons to bring women into the new association. Women represented an important institutional constituency for the creation of history departments and the implementation of standardized history curricula in the high schools, academies, and colleges of the nation. If the new history was to triumph, it had to be properly conveyed. The AHA founders approached their teaching with missionary zeal. 
In the 1880s and 1890s, women's colleges represented a significant component of the academic world. And although they were headed by men, they were increasingly staffed by female teachers. Women who were members of the AHA could thus serve the useful function of bringing history to their strongholds, the women's academies and colleges. AHA spokesmen insisted that the same history curriculum be taught to both women and men. Curriculum written almost exclusively by straight, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant men. They saw no irony in assigning female students roles as members of the English House of Commons and having them debate issues of constitutional and legislative policy. This was a teaching method that was used in the 1880s and 1890s at Wellesley and at Johns Hopkins, despite the fact that women had no vote and no formal political role in either the United States or England. In addition, women were not excluded as objects of historical interest. Henry Adams, for example, urged that history's scope go beyond a focus on great men, reminded his colleagues of the unnumbered thousands, yes, millions of good men and true and of faithful devoted women who support good leadership and carry humanity forward from generation to generation. It is often the biography of some plain man, like Abraham Lincoln, or some self-sacrificing woman, like Florence Nightingale, that affords the greatest encouragement and incentive to ordinary humanity. But we must remember that no man, no woman, is worthy of biographical or historical record unless in some way he or she has contributed to the welfare of society and the progress of the world. Although the numbers were variable, anywhere from 15 to 25 percent of the membership during the AHA's first century was made up of women. And during that 100-year period between 1884 and 1984, only one woman served as president of the organization, Dr. Nellie Nielsen, who served in 1943 when she was 70 years old and many men were off fighting a war. Presidents prior to Dr. Nielsen had included Henry Adams, Laurel Hill East, Henry Charles Lee in 1903, American past presidents Theodore Roosevelt in 1912, and Woodrow Wilson in 1924, and the year before Nielsen's term, Arthur Schlesinger Sr. in 1942. Nellie Nielsen was born in Philadelphia on the 5th of April, 1873. Her father, William George Nielsen, 1842 to 1906, was a mining and metallurgical engineer who was a member of the American Iron and Steel Institute. William graduated from the Polytechnic College of Pennsylvania, founded in 1853. He became connected with the Elizabethtown Steel Forges in 1869 and in 1870 was with the Pennsylvania Steel Company. In 1871, he was appointed general manager of the Logan Iron and Steel Company and then served as manager of the Standard Steel Works from 1877 to 1890. It was in 1878 that William Nielsen was placed in charge of the first consignment of American-made locomotives sent to Russia 
and went with a hand-picked crew from the Baldwin Locomotive Works to aid them in their shipment. The engines were successfully put into service on the border of East Prussia, now Lithuania. Mr. Nielsen was an active member of the American Institute of Mining Engineers, and in 1876 he served as secretary of the Centennial Committee of that organization. He was a bit of an industrial historian himself, as in 1867 he published a monograph called Charcoal Blast Furnaces, Rolling Mills, Forges, and Steelworks of New York. In 1888, with a few friends, he purchased land in upstate New York that was about to be sold for its timber, and they established the Adirondack Mountain Reserve, one of the largest and most attractive forest reserves in New York State. Its area, which includes Mount Marcy and the Ausable Lakes, still retains its original wilderness and beauty. It has served as a game refuge to the present time. At its peak, it contained 40,000 acres of wilderness. Currently, it's 7,000 acres, with dozens of trailheads and numerous high peaks to scale. William was president of the Republic Mining and Manufacturing Company from 1892 until his death in 1906. He's interred at Laurel Hill West in the summit section. In 1872, he had married Mary Louise Cunningham of Philadelphia. And at his death, he was survived by two sons and four daughters, including Nellie, the eldest of the six, born the year after William and Mary married. I cannot determine where Nellie Nielsen did her primary education, but she majored in Greek and English in the relatively new Quaker College of Bryn Mawr, which had been founded in 1885. After she graduated in 1893, she continued her studies, and by 1899, she had earned an MA and a PhD in history from Bryn Mawr. During her studies, she spent two years studying in Cambridge, more than 50 years before that institution would grant degrees to women. Her mentor in England, Frederick William Maitland, used Nielsen's scholarship in 1897 to make a plea for the granting of degrees to women scholars, but his quest was unsuccessful. In 1898, Nellie Nielsen submitted her doctoral dissertation, Economic Conditions on the Manners of Ramsey Abbey, for publication under the gender-obscuring byline N. Nielsen. The Ramsey Abbey was a Benedictine stronghold from 969 to 1539. Nielsen studied both printed and manuscript sources from the 12th to the 15th century. She was granted her PhD in 1899 and she chose her area of specialization, medieval history, a relatively new discipline. Less than 30 years earlier, in 1870, 32-year-old Henry Adams had been looking forward to building a literary political career for himself in Washington, D.C. He went from Boston to Cambridge at the urging of family and friends to discuss with Harvard University President Charles W. Eliot his invitation to join the small department of history at Harvard as assistant professor of medieval history. But, Mr. President, urged Adams, I know nothing about medieval history. 
and with a courteous manner, Mr. Elliot mildly but firmly replied, If you will point out to me anyone who knows more, Mr. Adams, I will appoint him. Now, by this time, Philadelphia publisher and private scholar Henry Charles Lee had already produced three works in the field of medieval religion and was on the way toward his major work on the Inquisition. But Lee, already 45 and partner in his publishing firm of Lee and Febiger for a quarter of a century, would not have been attracted to a teaching career. Lee, interred at Laurel Hill East in Section S, was covered in All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories number 18, The Calder Connection. Medieval scholars in America at the turn of the century shared certain characteristics that were already in evidence in the career of Henry Adams. First, the interest and even the expertise of those engaged in medieval studies was often self-acquired. They were individuals who were developing what was for them a new and uncharted area and in so doing moved away from the interests and perspectives of their teachers. What formal graduate training they had, and this was a second characteristic of crucial importance to medieval studies in America, was largely derived from European study, principally in Germany. Medieval studies was without any obvious practical application and was therefore considered a harmless hobby of the leisure class. Now, after she published her PhD thesis, Nellie Nielsen was almost certainly the most expertly trained woman historian in the United States. But for five years, from 1897 to 1902, the only job she could get was teaching at the Agnes Irwin School, a non-sectarian college preparatory day school for girls from pre-kindergarten through grade 12. I talked about this before, this school before. It was founded in 1869 in Philadelphia by Agnes Irwin, a great-granddaughter of Benjamin Franklin. And from 1900 to 1902, Nielsen also worked as a reader in English at Bryn Mawr. At last, in 1902, Dr. Nellie Nielsen found a job in her specialty at Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts, and she stayed there for the next 37 years. She worked first as a history instructor, but quickly rose to being professor of European history, and from 1905 onward as a professor of history. Mount Holyoke was founded in 1837 by Mary Lyon as Mount Holyoke Female Seminary. Later, both Vassar College and Wellesley College were patterned after Mount Holyoke, which received its collegiate charter in 1888. Then it became Mount Holyoke Seminary and College. Although it still does not admit male undergraduate students, it was the first of the so-called Seven Sisters Colleges to admit transgender and non-binary students. As chair of the college's history department from 1903 to 1939, Dr. Nielsen helped to create a robust department with an impressive specialized library. She found history an adventurous subject, quote, to be loved and cultivated for its own sake, unquote. She was a tireless researcher who ardently promoted the importance of honors and graduate work. 
She continued to write academic articles in books during summers and leaves of absence, and she crossed the Atlantic repeatedly, even during the Great War, to study historical records in England. She primarily concerned herself with medieval English, economic, legal, and agrarian history, and became known in both Great Britain and the United States as a respected authority on those subjects. She was admired for her ability to fuse scholarship and teaching and to support general historical concepts with impeccable detail. Among the publications she either wrote or edited were A Terrier of Fleet Lincolnshire from a Manuscript in the British Museum, 1920. The Carcellarian Terrier of the Priory of Bilsington, Kent, 1928. Yearbooks of Edward IV, 1931 and Medieval Agrarian Economy in 1936, which was designed and used as a college textbook. Nielsen was an active member of several other professional organizations in her field, including the Royal Historical Society, and she was fully cognizant of her part in the struggle of women scholars to gain respect for their achievements. She was the first woman to publish a volume in the Oxford Studies in Social and Legal History series in 1910. The first woman to edit a yearbook of the Selden Society, which is a learned group concerned with the study of English legal history. It functions primarily as a text publication society, but also undertakes other activities to promote scholarship within its sphere of interest. It is the only learned society wholly devoted to the topic of English legal history. Nielsen's reputation as an expert in medieval terminology and nomenclature was such that in the mid-1920s, she was appointed to serve on the American Council of Learned Societies Committee on a Dictionary of Late Medieval British Latin, working with colleagues in England, Scotland, and Ireland. Nellie Nielsen was also the first woman to publish an article in the Harvard Law Review, Custom and the Common Law in Kent, and the first woman to be elected as a fellow of the Medieval Academy of America. She made numerous contributions to Speculum, a journal of medieval studies. This is a quarterly academic journal published by University of Chicago Press on behalf of the Medieval Academy of America. Established in 1926, Speculum has always been widely regarded as the most prestigious journal in medieval studies. But in addition to her scholarship, Nielsen was a great lover of the outdoors. She enjoyed climbing in the Adirondack Mountains, which had been preserved by her father, along with horseback riding and ice skating, and she was an early aficionado of skiing. In 1921, at Mount Holyoke, she formed the Outing Club to, quote, promote student involvement in outdoor sports, end quote. Activities were conducted from a cabin she had built on Skitter Mountain. This cabin held a maximum of 12 people, but because the club encouraged visitors to get to know each other, they permitted only three people per group, and on most weekends arranged for four separate groups to stay at the cabin together. Spending a weekend from Saturday morning to Sunday afternoon cost $1.35 per person. The women enjoyed physical activities such as horseback riding, skiing, tobogganing, skating, snowshoeing, hiking, and canoeing. 
After a fire in 1958 destroyed the original cabin, the outing club, with the help of alumni, raised $15,000 to rebuild the cabin, which reopened in December 1960. The fee to spend a weekend there now is $25 per night. When a heart attack in 1925 hindered her active lifestyle, she learned to drive, and she often toured the Connecticut Valley. After serving on the Council and Board of Editors of the American Historical Association and as its Vice President, in 1943, Nielsen at last became its first woman president, 50 years after she graduated from Bryn Mawr College, 11 years after she had first been nominated for the presidency in 1932, five years after she retired from Mount Holyoke, and three years after she'd served as second vice president of the organization. In her presidential address, Dr. Nellie Nielsen urged that history be studied not only for its own sake, but also for the growth of political and social ideas whose birth lies hidden in the remote past, but whose influence has had an important share in forming present opinion and action resulting therefrom. It was also in 1943 that historians William B. Hazeltine and Lewis Kaplan published a statistical study of women who had received PhDs in history over the past 50 years. They noted that most PhD candidates in history have been actuated by two ambitions, to qualify themselves for college teaching positions and to make contributions to knowledge about the past. From 1891, to 1935, a total of 334 women received PhDs in history. 206 of those were awarded after 1925. This is compared with 1,721 men over the same period. In terms of employment, by 1939, only 49% of female PhD recipients had won academic positions in the historical profession compared with 74% of males. Nellie Nielsen never married or had children. I find no record of her having a longtime companion. Despite her numerous accomplishments in history and the shattering of several glass ceilings, I also find no record of any chair or named lecture or award named for her. She died of a stroke in her home in South Hadley, Massachusetts, on May 26, 1947. She is interred at Laurel Hill West in the Summit Section, Lot 440, in the Nielsen family plot with her parents and several siblings. If you ever find yourself in West Philadelphia, on the campus of the University of Pennsylvania, walk to the corner of 33rd and Spruce. Looming on the left is Franklin Field, where the Philadelphia Eagles once played, now home of Ivy League sporting events. Across Spruce, sitting back from the street, is an impressive building with courtyards and a koi pond. The University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, now known as the Penn Museum. Most famous for its massive sphinx of Ramses II, the museum has a collection of over a million objects, 
and is one of the leading museums of archaeology and anthropology in the world. Venture inside and find the museum archives. There on the wall is an oil portrait of a woman painted in 1917 to mark her 70th birthday. She looks formidable, but not unapproachable. The sleeves of her beautiful dress are pushed up as if she is ready to get down to work. Won't you join me, she could be saying. You were looking at the co-founder of the Penn Museum, Sarah York Stevenson. Co-founding a major museum would seem to us today to be the highlight of anyone's career, and it was for Stevenson, but she accomplished so much more. I want to share her story with you, and you will ask, how could she do it all? For in addition to being an Egyptologist, curator, and museum leader, Sarah was a civic activist, a campaigner for women's suffrage, an author, editor, and columnist. Sarah York Stevenson arrived in Philadelphia as a 21-year-old without much money. Her father had died, and she was sent to live with two elderly uncles and an aunt she had never met. But she had already had an eventful life. Born in Paris in 1847 to American parents, the father from Philadelphia, she hobnobbed with, among others, Napoleon's half-brother. The family returned to the U.S. when Sarah was 10. She was enrolled in a day school in New Orleans where the family was living, but the 10-year-old Sarah turned up her nose at the curriculum there and persuaded her parents to let her return to Paris and her French boarding school. She was clearly persuasive from a young age. She left Paris at age 15, and there is no record of her further education, but she never stopped learning. The family moved to Mexico City in 1862, where her father was involved in building railroads. The French intervention had just occurred under the Emperor Maximilian. Sarah had a ringside seat, attended parties at the imperial court, and witnessed the military conflict from up close. But the French were defeated, and the family was forced to flee back to the United States in 1867. Sarah later wrote a book about this period called Maximilian in Mexico, A Woman's Reminiscences of the French Intervention. Things changed for Sarah when in 1870, she married Philadelphia attorney Cornelius Stevenson. She was 23, he 28. He came from an old Philadelphia family of means. No longer did she worry about money. She took her place in society and began her community involvement joining the Women's Committee for the Centennial Exposition, which produced the Women's Building, highlighting women's achievements. This was the first women's building at an international exposition, and it was hailed as a milestone in the 19th century women's movement. Sarah worked for women's rights throughout her life. Aside from the birth of her son in 1878, we know little of her activities at this time but she must have devoted huge amounts of time to learning about things that interested her. And she must have been successful because in the 1880s, she was invited to join the Mitchell Furnace Coterie. This group, which never numbered more than 18, was made up of Philadelphia's intellectual elite. The central figures were S. Weir Mitchell, neurologist and author, buried at the Woodlands, and Horace Howard Furness, renowned Shakespeare scholar, pen lecturer and trustee, and brother of Frank Furness, the architect. 
H. H. Furness is buried at Laurel Hill East, Section T, Plot 7. The Coterie met frequently to discuss art, literature, and anthropology, among other topics. Most notably and uncommonly, the group included women and saw them as intellectual equals. The members of the Coterie were Philadelphia doctors, writers, educators, anthropologists, among them were Owen Wister, the novelist, buried at Laurel Hill East, Section J, Plots 206-207, and William Pepper, the physician and Penn provost, at a time when the provost was the chief executive of the university. What did Sarah offer the coterie? She had become an expert on Egyptology. She joined the American branch of the Egypt Exploration Fund, which advocated for research and preservation of ancient Egyptian monuments. In 1887, Sarah and other prominent Philadelphians, some members of the Mitchell Furnace Coterie, raised money to underwrite an exploring exposition to Babylon. In return, all finds that could be exported would be brought back to Philadelphia and become the property of the University of Pennsylvania, provided a suitable fireproof place could be found to house them. William Pepper added that pen provision, as, like Sarah, he was passionate about archaeology. The expedition produced a large number of artifacts, which were displayed in the university's new library, now the Fisher Fine Arts Library. Pepper thought an extension of the library could be built to house the collection. But Sarah York Stevenson had bigger ideas. She proposed a separate building be constructed to display these materials, a building exclusively focused on archaeology and ethnology. In other words, a museum. Now, the university trustees were not willing to pay for a museum building. They agreed to fund expeditions, but they drew the line at a building. So Sarah and Pepper set to work. They raised funds from their wealthy friends, but far more money was needed. To erect the first phase of the building would take $500,000, in excess of $16 million today. Sarah went to the state capitol, Harrisburg, and lobbied for funding, and she was successful in obtaining $125,000, over $4 million in today's dollars, still persuasive at this point. And Pepper and Sarah succeeded in getting Philadelphia's mayor to donate the land on which would be built the Free Museum of Science and Art, open to the public at no charge. The first section was completed in 1899, and we know it today as the Penn Museum. It actually remained free until 1987. Sarah was extremely active with her museum duties. She was appointed curator of the Egyptian and Mediterranean section. Full disclosure, my brother is the current curator of the Mediterranean section. In addition to fundraising and being involved with the construction of the building, Sarah was focused on amassing a collection to be housed in the new museum. And her reputation as an Egyptologist was growing. She published a monograph in 1892 on decorative symbols on Egyptian pottery. And articles such as the tomb of King Amenhotep or some sculptures from Koptos in Philadelphia. She lectured locally and nationally. She was the first woman to be invited to speak at the Peabody Museum at Harvard. Her talk was entitled, Egypt at the Dawn of History. Reports at the time said her lecture created a sensation. Pretty good for a woman who left school at 15. 
1897, she went to Rome on behalf of the museum, but her most ambitious travel was to Egypt in 1898. Sarah herself was not a field archaeologist. Her goal in order to build the museum's Egypt collection was to organize the museum's first field project there. This was easier said than done. Sarah ultimately decided to hire a young man named Rasher to join the existing dig of Flinders Petrie at Denderah. Although Rasher was ineffectual, 42 crates of artifacts from this dig were shipped to Philadelphia and became part of the museum's collection. In recognition of all her work in establishing and raising funds for the museum, arranging for artifacts to fill its galleries, and for her contributions to scholarship on ancient Egypt, the university gave Sarah York Stevenson an honorary degree, a D.S.I., in 1894. She was the first woman to receive an honorary degree from Penn. Sarah was far more than an Egyptologist. She was a kind of Renaissance woman, as her other activities from the late 1880s into the 20th century will show. To name just a handful of the organizations she founded, joined, and led in this time period. The Oriental Club, to encourage Oriental study and research. The members were professors at leading universities. They changed their bylaws in 1891 to remove the male-only requirement so that Sarah York Stevenson could be admitted. She was named treasurer in short order and became president in 1900. The Contemporary Club, a club to discuss contemporary problems, open to women as well as men. She was vice president and then became president of that. The Civic Club, women who advocated for civic reform, the first club of its kind in the country. She was co-founder and president from 1894 to 1899. The Acorn Club, one of the first women's clubs in the country, president from 1894 to 1919. The Archaeological Institute of America, president of the Pennsylvania chapter, 1899 to 1903. In 1892, the World's Columbian Exposition was held in Chicago. Sarah was nominated to serve on the jury of awards for ethnology. Amazingly, a special act of Congress had to be passed to allow women to serve as jurors. Not surprisingly, Sarah was elected vice president of the jury. It was also no surprise that in 1895, Sarah was elected to the American Philosophical Society, America's oldest learned society and one of the most prestigious. She was the only woman member at the time, but in fact, she was the sixth woman to be elected. Clearly, Sarah was able to juggle a lot. There are even rumors that she was romantically involved with William Pepper. Pepper was an impressive man. After a distinguished medical career, he became the Penn Provost in 1881, and during his 13-year tenure, he expanded Penn from five schools to nine, more than doubled the student body to over 2,600, and grew the faculty from 42 to 245. Oh, and in his spare time, he founded the Free Library of Philadelphia. In 1894, Pepper stepped down as provost and accepted the presidency or chairman of the board position of the Department of Archaeology, which would soon become the Penn Museum. He now could focus more on his passion, archaeology. In addition to co-founding the Penn Museum with Sarah, 
He was also active in persuading another wealthy woman, Phoebe Hurst, mother of William Randolph Hearst, to fund expeditions and to create her own museum, now the Phoebe Hearst Museum of Anthropology at Berkeley. There is no proof that Sarah and William were involved. Of course, both were married with children. Pepper's letters to Sarah during the 1890s were numerous, even voluminous. Sometimes he wrote multiple times a day. Alas, very few of hers to him survive. He addresses her warmly, confidentially, as they plan their museum and other projects, but they're not romantic letters. Clearly, they were very close colleagues, perhaps soulmates. Who knows the truth? Alas, it all ended on July 29, 1898, when Pepper, after years of driving himself, despite his failing health, died at the age of 55. Interestingly, he died at the home of Phoebe Hurst in Pleasanton, California. His body was returned to Philadelphia and is buried at Laurel Hill East, Section J, Lot 174. Sarah mourned Pepper's passing, but she continued her leadership and curatorial work at the museum. In 1904, she was elected president or chair of the board herself. The tension between the university and the museum over funding continued. Now, some of the curators were Penn professors, and this wasn't an issue until Herman Hilprecht, a professor of Assyriology, curator of the Babylonian section, and director of the expedition at Nippur, was accused of unethical practices, such as claiming to have found tablets actually dug up by a colleague and having appropriated some of the artifacts from the dig for himself. Hilprecht was an egotistical self-promoter who antagonized his colleagues. Given his difficult personality and the seriousness of the charges, the museum board felt Hilprecht should be terminated. The university stepped in and Provost Charles Harrison and the Penn trustees said not so fast. They declared that they should have control over whether or not to fire Hilprecht. The museum trustees were outraged. If the museum board were going to be deprived of its power and its independence, and if such a person as Hilprecht could possibly be allowed to continue in his position, then Sarah York Stevenson would no longer be involved. She resigned in February 1905. In her letter of resignation, there's no rancor. She recapped her history with the museum, added a plug for ongoing funding to complete the building, and wished the board well. Most of the other officers also quit. The new president, Justice Strawbridge, assumed leadership but resigned himself the next month. All told, over a hundred museum members followed Sarah out the door. Sarah watched from afar as the Penn trustees launched their own investigation of Hilprecht. The whole affair captured the public's imagination. Dozens of newspaper articles appeared covering the charges. Sarah saved these articles as they were found among her papers, along with editorial cartoons mocking Hilprecht and the university. In the end, the Penn trustees felt firing him would reflect badly on the university. They overruled the museum board and reinstated Hilprecht. Their investigation was called a whitewash. This was clearly not the university's finest hour. Almost 60 years old now, Sarah had plenty to keep her busy, but in 1908, her family had financial difficulties. 
and so she set out to find paid employment. She didn't have to look far, turning her attention to the Philadelphia Museum and School of Industrial Art. These institutions became the Philadelphia Museum of Art and the University of the Arts. The Philadelphia Museum was an outgrowth of the Centennial Exhibition in 1876. After the fair closed, its art gallery in Memorial Hall in Fairmount Park remained open as a museum. In the early 20th century, the collection expanded, educational programs were added, and plans for a new building, the current Philadelphia Museum of Art on the Parkway, were finalized. Sarah became a salaried curator at the museum and even served as acting director for a time. The museum was the first to publish a quarterly bulletin of professional and scholarly interest. Sarah published regular articles in the bulletin, typically focused on an object in the collection. In the April 1908 edition of the bulletin, the following appears, quote, It is proposed to establish at the School of Industrial Art of the Pennsylvania Museum a course in the training of curators for art, archaeological, and industrial museums under the supervision of Mrs. Cornelius Stevenson, PsyD, unquote. Museums were being founded throughout the country at this time, and there was a need for trained curators. The next issue of the bulletin details the 12 lectures in Stevenson's course. She begins with the history of museums, followed by the modern museum. She covers the museum building with attention to light, heat, water, workshops, repair shops, and storerooms. She addresses the art of collecting. In addition to her lecture, she took her students to every museum in the city, met with directors and curators, critiqued exhibits, identified problems of preservation and conservation. This was the first course in museum studies and curatorship offered in the United States. While engaged in this museum work, Sarah also launched a career in journalism for which she was also paid. From 1908 until 1920, she was the literary editor of the Philadelphia Public Ledger, one of the city's most popular newspapers. She authored a column called Peggy Shippen's Diary, Shippen being the Philadelphian who married Benedict Arnold. Her column was extremely popular, covering society events as well as other topics. It went out on the Ledger's wire service, the Ledger Syndicate, which distributed columns throughout the U.S. In Sarah's papers are several letters from readers as far away as Maine. Later, she launched a second column under the pen name Sally Wister. During this time, Sarah would work from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the museum, then spend a few hours in the afternoon at the public ledger's offices before returning home. In the evening, she would read and write until 1.30 or 2 in the morning. Quite a schedule for a woman in her 60s and early 70s. As if juggling two jobs were not enough, Sarah added two major areas of civic involvement to an already impressive list. In 1909, she founded and was the first president of the Equal Franchise Society of Philadelphia, a group of women of wealth, the goal of which was to channel energy into political action for the vote. Already in December 1908, Sarah had written a letter to the editor of the New York Times decrying President Teddy Roosevelt's statement that to him, the women's vote was unimportant. Sarah remained active with the Equal Franchise Society until 1920 when the vote was achieved. 
One of Sarah's final passions was the support of France during World War I. France was the country of her birth where she received her formal education. From 1915 to 1920, she was vice chairman of Emergency Aid of Pennsylvania and chairman of its French War Relief Committee. The committee was praised for its efficiency and ability to respond to the needs of devastated villages, hospitals, and orphanages. Sarah and her colleagues raised over 1.6 million, over 34 million today. At the same time, she was active in the effort to neutralize German propaganda in the United States. For her tireless work in sending doctors, nurses, surgical instruments, ambulances, and medicines to France, she received numerous awards, among them the Medal of Verdun, the Medal of the French Red Cross, and from the French government, the Chevalier of the Legion of Honor. In her final year, it was clear that Sarah's health was failing. Months before she died, she gave a luncheon for her many friends, some of more than 50 years. The place cards at each seat featured her motto, why not tell the truth with a smile? Sarah was only confined to her bed nine days before her death, after suffering a stroke. She died on November 14, 1921, at 74 years of age. She was buried at Laurel Hill East, Section T, Plots 190 to 195. A memorial meeting hosted by 14 national and local institutions, many of which she led, founded, or co-founded, was held the following April in the Penn Museum Auditorium. U.S. Senator George Wharton Pepper presided and began things with this statement. Sarah York Stevenson lived and died a Philadelphian, but the circle of her interests included all the world. In the speeches that followed, Sarah was praised for her impressive intellect, indomitable energy, collaborative personality, and assured executive abilities. One speaker remarked that Philadelphia has lost its most distinguished woman. In my opinion, she was one of Philadelphia's most distinguished citizens, full stop. We will take a break before we get back to our last amazing lady in this month's podcast. I thank you for giving some stars and reviews on the Apple site. Uh, we've got 65 episodes up now, more than 25,000 downloads, believe it or not, and all five-star ratings, plus several really nice reviews. Tell a friend about the podcast if you like it, especially if that friend is into Philadelphia history. You can get in touch with me, joe at joelex.net. If you have any comments, any suggestions, I'd love to hear what you think of my having guest people tell stories about Laurel Hill folks. Um, Pat Rose is my guest host this month, and I think she did a terrific job on Sarah York Stevenson. She spent a lot of time on that. So I'd like to hear your comments also. Okay, what's coming up at the cemetery? As usual, we will have two hotspots and storied plots tours at Laurel Hill East. Those are the general tours, and one sacred spaces and storied places tour at Laurel Hill West. Check the website, laurelhillphl.com, 
to get the exact dates and times. I will tell you about the theme tours, though. We've got some good ones coming up. St. Patrick's Day, Tour and Tastes, on Saturday, March 18th at 1 p.m. That's at Laurel Hill East. Wondrous Women, Sunday, March 19th at 10 a.m. at Laurel Hill West. I want to be there for that. This is a brand new tour, and I want to want to hear what uh, the guide has to say on that. Daring Dames, Sunday, March 26th, 1 p.m. at Laurel Hill East, and I will be there for that one. Looking to April, there's a tour on April 2nd at Laurel Hill West at 10 a.m. called Sweet Souls and Confectionery Connections. All of the confectionery people, the candy makers, the sugar magnets, the ice cream makers at Laurel Hill West. That will be a fun tour. And then there is a tour that we do about once every two years. It's called Unsinkable to Unthinkable Titanic Passengers. We have six Titanic passengers at Laurel Hill East and six at Laurel Hill West. This is on Saturday, April 15th at 1 p.m. We start at Laurel Hill East and then we move to Laurel Hill West for the second half of the tour. The Titanic tour is given by Laura Lewis. It's really a good tour. I highly recommend it. It's usually sold out, so you better get your tickets early. I think she had 40 or 50 people for it last time she did it. Liberty or Death, Revolutionary War Soldiers, is by Russ Dodge, Sunday, April 16th at 1 p.m. at Laurel Hill East. And then I give a tour on April 30th. It's called Welcome to Franconia, a slice of Philadelphia. I consider Franconia one of the two most interesting sections of the cemetery, along with Summit. Um, They both have fascinating people. Franconia, you're going to meet civil rights leaders. You're going to meet Mama Dietz. You're going to meet Grover Washington. And you're going to meet the architect, Horace Trumbauer, and we're going to look across the street at Billionaire's Row. (laughs) Laurel Hill East has its Millionaire's Row. Laurel Hill West has its Billionaire's Row. And we will poke our heads across the street to where they are buried in this tour. Plus, lots of mausoleums, lots of stained glass. First time this tour is being given. Sunday, April 30th, 1 p.m., Laurel Hill West. So please plan to join me on that Welcome to Franconia, a slice of Philadelphia. Okay, let us get back to the podcast. When I was researching the January 2022 podcast about Howard Head, 1914 to 1991, the patron saint of average athletes who literally revolutionized two sports during his lifetime, skiing and tennis. I also got interested in other family members in the same plot. They're all interred in the river section, lots 1018 and 1020 of Laurel Hill West with two flat brown ledger stones. They're a good 75 feet from the road and down a rather steep grade almost directly behind Caleb Milne's obelisk. The head plot is very easily missed unless you know precisely where to look. And the footing is somewhat unsteady. 
I am not even sure that I would want to take a tour group down there. Howard Head's father, Joseph Head, DDSMD, 1862-1950, was Dean of Dentistry at Jefferson Medical School from 1917 to 1930. His brother, Joseph Head Jr., 1907-1991, was an accomplished trial lawyer who suffered the tragic loss of two sons in Mexico. Manton Bradley Head, 1941-1955, who was named partially for his mother, Helen Bradley Smith Putnam, died of polio while vacationing in that country. While Joseph Head III, 1939-1966, was robbed and murdered while visiting Mexico soon after he graduated from Penn State. Howard Head's sister, Elizabeth, caught my attention. She was 10 years his senior, and she had traveled to Europe with the family twice before Howard was even born, and then she went back several times later. After she attended the Agnes Irwin School, then located at Delancey Place in Center City, she went to Vassar College in 1922 with the intent of becoming a physician like her father. Qualitative chemistry was her downfall. She rarely could identify any of the ingredients that were supposed to be present. She eventually graduated from the University of Colorado in 1927. Elizabeth discovered that she had a talent for writing, and she spent several years as an advertising copywriter for a Philadelphia department store. I have not been able to discover which one. She took the nom de plume Hannah Lee's and she started submitting some of her writings, both fiction and nonfiction, to the magazines of the day. She was a good writer, and her work got published. She met a young intern at Philadelphia General Hospital named Ferdinand Fetter, who had gone to college and medical school at University of Minnesota. They married in 1930. Now she was surrounded by medicine. Her father, her husband, her sister, two sisters-in-law and a brother-in-law, all were practicing physicians. Hannah Lee's first major publication appears to be an article called Almighty Dollar in the New Yorker's 27 May 1933 issue. It concerns an expatriate American woman who made do by illegally exchanging various currencies on the black market. Hannah got two more articles published with the magazine in 1933, and then she struck gold. Six articles in The New Yorker in 1934, three more in 1935. She was regularly seen in the same issues as A.J. Liebling, Joseph Mitchell, James Thurber, Franklin Pierce Adams, Cornelia Otis Skinner, E.B. White, Robert Benchley, Dorothy Parker, and other luminaries of the 1930s New York literary scene. These articles were frequently character sketches. One from the 7 October 1933 edition of the New Yorker was called In 20 Years. It concerned Mrs. Keats, who had a very unfortunate habit of constantly imagining how people would look in 20 years. Lee's notes this gave her a contemplative air in conversation, which was a bit disconcerting to her friends. 
In a sketch from the 23 February 1934 edition called Vagabond Cruise, she wrote of an elderly couple taking a cruise in the Mediterranean. Their family received news from them from strange places they'd never heard of and couldn't find on a map. And there was no way of knowing when they would return to this country. On a vagabond cruise, she explained, the captain is under orders to change direction and location from day to day. Her last article for the New Yorker was apparently in the 14 December 1940 issue. It's on page 124, right next to an advertisement for the Glenn Miller Orchestra featuring Marion Hutton and Ray Eberly at the Cafe Rouge in the Hotel Pennsylvania. And you know their phone number, Pennsylvania 65000. In this sketch, she writes a Philadelphian's thought of being the country mouse in the big city. Perhaps things would have seemed different to me if I had been wearing town clothes and had had a manicure. But I had just come up, reluctantly and unexpectedly, from my house in the country near Philadelphia. I was walking toward 7th Avenue through that arcade of shops in the Pennsylvania station. My tweed suit could never have been called anything but country clothes by even my dearest friend. And my belligerent pretense of not caring what New York thought of my appearance wasn't very sustaining. That was probably why the station shops looked so smart to me. Even the perfumes and the powders in the drugstore window glittered alluringly. And that little specialty shop where a girl can buy a nightgown if she suddenly decides to stay over until tomorrow looked like glamour. After a few more paragraphs about her uneasy venture to the Big Apple, she ended her tale on the next page with, I didn't stay in town for dinner. I didn't dare. And after that, there were no more stories in The New Yorker. She wrote for other magazines, though. Despite not getting into medical school, she had a lifelong interest in medical affairs and could write about them seemingly effortlessly. Her article in the 16 May 1936 issue of Collier's Weekly set the tone for her style. It's called Two Million Tightrope Walkers and concerns the current state of treating diabetes in America. Insulin had been introduced commercially in 1923, 13 years earlier. I think the writing is brilliant. For the moment a person gets diabetes, he sets his foot on a long tightrope that can hold him suspended above invalidism and death. If his diabetes is mild, he can become quite at home on this tightrope, learning to do stunts and fancy dances. Even if it is severe, he can, with care, learn to walk easily and pleasantly. Just so long as he keeps his balance, all is well. But if he slips and falls, he falls into diabetic coma and perhaps death. His only hope is to keep walking carefully, and he's glad to do it. For 15 short years ago, about the time most of us were humming just a love nest or going wide-eyed over Rudolph Valentino, there wasn't any tightrope. 15 years ago, most people with diabetes starved or died. Sometimes they starved and then died anyway. 
15 years ago, the thing that held this tightrope up hadn't been discovered, and that is insulin. The articles for Collier's kept coming, most of them with a medical theme. Here's looking through you about radiology in February 1937. Living on liver, why anemia won't kill you now in October 1939. The surgeon follows the bombs in May 1941. Doctor's Dilemma in July 1942. Seagoing Surgery, September 1942. Block That Blood Clot, December 1942. All Out Against Cancer in February 1946. Bright Kids Can't Fail in October 1948. Let's Live a Little Longer in January 1947. Farewell to Benzedrine Benders in August 1949, and many, many more. The last issue of Collier's Magazine was published on 4 January 1957. Lee's next stop, Saturday Evening Post. She seemed to concentrate on family matters for the Post. Our men are killing themselves in January 1956. How to be happy, though incompatible, in February 1957. Husbands can't live in captivity, February 1957. Your child doesn't need you forever, May 1957. How often do you insult your child, July 1959. And especially, women should not play dumb, in January 1961. Hannah Lees does not keep her politics to herself. Having been raised in a Republican family, she became a Democrat after her marriage. She wrote for the progressive bi-weekly magazine, The Reporter, which had a huge influence on policymakers of the day. Among her articles for this bastion of liberalism were Making Our Cities Fit to Live In in February 1957. The Making of a Negro Middle Class in October 1964, and Self-Help in Philadelphia in December 1964. The reporter stopped publishing in 1968. So many articles on so many topics, all of them well-written and thoughtful and eminently readable. I wish that someone would gather her magazine writings into an anthology. Her bombshell article, though, was in the May 1944 issue of Hygieia, a medical magazine for non-medical people. Its title is The Word You Can't Say. This five-page write-up was four years ahead of the blockbusting sexual behavior in the human male by Alfred Kinsey and adopted a very matter-of-fact approach to masturbation, a term she said that people had been self-censoring. She says, It is a hard word for most of us to even read. Most of us were brought up with the idea that the worst thing that could happen to a child was to discover that touching certain parts of the body was remarkably more pleasurable than touching other parts. Self-abuse, it was called then, and that is the connotation that still clings to it. But it is a wrong connotation. She stresses that it is normal, quote, as eating and sleeping and crying and eliminating. All children do it. All children always have done it. As much when we were young as now, 
however conveniently we are able to forget that it could have ever been a problem with us. She mentions the incomprehensible ways that parents have tried to prevent this normal activity, including threats of castration. If you don't leave that part of your body alone, I'll cut it off. Other parents tell their children that they may go insane or blind or never be able to have children or break out in pimples. She spends five pages walking the reader through the steps of accepting masturbation as a normal part of humanity in 1944. It is a startlingly progressive article. And then there are the books, both fiction and nonfiction. Her first, Women Will Be Doctors, 1939. It's exactly like the title sounds. It's a look at the difficulties suffered by women who want to enter the medical profession. Prescription for Murder, 1941, a hospital-based murder mystery with an odd mix of characters. Some have Marxist backgrounds, others have neurotic problems. It has an anti-detective ending in which her amateur sleuth protagonist decides it would have been better if he'd never nosed around at all. Fewer people would be dead. Her 1943 novel, Death in the Doll's House, co-written with Lawrence P. Bachman, who had written scripts for both the Dr. Kildare and Dr. Gillespie movie series, was made into a 1950 film noir entitled Shadow on the Wall, a psychological thriller starring Anne Southern, Zachary Scott, eight-year-old Gigi Perot, and in her first featured role, Nancy Davis later First Lady Nancy Reagan. Death in the Doll's House was a critical and a financial flop. Just as Hannah Lee's most controversial magazine article on masturbation was the word you can't say, her most controversial full-length work was Till the Boys Come Home, the novel you could not write, also published in 1944. According to the sexual morality codes of the 1940s, women are supposed to wait. First, women are supposed to wait to be asked for a date. Then, women are supposed to wait until marriage for sexual intercourse. Now, wartime separation asks wives to wait once again. Wives are supposed to wait chastely for their husbands to return from the war. At a time when female sexuality was barely even recognized and less often spoken about, and the type of advice given to women whose husbands were away at war was mostly, keep busy. Lonely military wives would find books like Ethel Gorham's So Your Husband Has Gone to War and Margaret Buell Wilder's Since You Went Away, Letters to a Soldier from His Wife, but they were hardly solace for their physical yearnings. Wartime movies like Swing Shift Maisie, Tender Comrade, and The Very Thought of You were little more than glorified magazine articles. The idea of a sexualized war wife was virtually unheard of. Hannah Lee's Sophie, a successful medical researcher on a project with military significance, was something that caught critics and the reading public alike by surprise. 
A review of Till the Boys Come Home in the Saturday Review of Literature declared that Sophie is, quote, not a normal woman, end quote, and that the ordinary reader will have no choice but to condemn her. The reviewer concluded that Sophie's physical need verges on nymphomania. The review concludes, Till the Boys Come Home will, as the blurb says, shock some people and it will repel a great many more, not because of its frankness and honesty in dealing with abnormal psychology, but because Sophie herself, in her weakness, her selfishness, her condonement of vulgarity and promiscuity, and her lack of any sort of integrity, is a character for whom the reader will have no liking and very little sympathy. Diana Trilling, one of the preeminent critics of the 1940s, took a different stance about Till the Boys Come Home. Without any intention of sensationalism, Miss Lees describes with extraordinary frankness the sexual substitutes for a husband which are available to the women left behind. Sophie not only masturbates, she has two heterosexual affairs, one lesbian affair, and she apparently suffers no consequences. She feels ashamed and guilty, but she also feels vital and loved. When her husband is wounded and sent home, the book makes it unclear whether she will ever be found out and, quote, appropriately punished. The end is a bit heavy-handed. It involves her pondering a copy of Crime and Punishment that she finds in the home library. That book, by the way, Till the Boys Come Home, I found a copy on, ooh, I think it was eBay for a couple of bucks. It's pretty hot for a 1944 novel. <laughs> the last Hannah Lee's book I will mention is called Help Your Husband Stay Alive. It was published in 1957 as a guidebook for marriage. It was serialized over several parts in numerous newspapers across the country. And again, she pulled no punches. I think one of the things that is destroying men today is that they are afraid of themselves, of us women, and of each other. They're afraid to stop still for a minute and look around and ask themselves what they really want out of life. They're afraid that if they stop still for one minute, something terrible will happen. Elizabeth and Ferdinand had two children together, one of whom, Anne Fetter Friedlander, 1938 to 1992, was a famed economist and a teacher of economics. In a 1950 newspaper article, she was described as a rather dark woman with flashing black eyes and a quick, nervous smile who loathed sentimentality. Quote, she goes into fits of moodiness when she is either way up or way down, end quote. For relaxation, she was a member of the Philadelphia Skating Club in Ardmore, but like her brother, not with the greatest of ease. She didn't go for summer sports because of multiple allergies. Her mind was constantly working, and thoughts tumbled out a mile a minute. But she was exceedingly absent-minded and had a terrible time remembering names and faces. In 1951, she directed the telephone campaign of the successful Clark Dilworth 
Philadelphia mayoral campaign and then served from 1951 to 1959 on the Commission of Human Relations. She also served on the National Board of Directors for the Planned Parenthood World Population, on the Board for the Americans for Democratic Action, and she headed public relations for the Philadelphia Council of the United World Federalists. For three years, beginning in 1953, she taught experimental writing at Bryn Mawr College. And for two years before her death, she taught a course on the novel at the Philadelphia Writers' Conference. Elizabeth died at her home at 322 South 21st Street after a long illness on 21 January 1973. She was 68 years old. Her husband, Dr. Ferdinand Fetter, outlived her by 18 years. He died at 85 in 1991. Dr. Ferdinand Fetter was a wiry man, medium height. He practiced internal medicine in a red brick townhouse at 21st and Delancey Streets for more than 50 years, and he retired two years before his death at 85 in 1991. He loved opera, which he would attend up to five times a week when he went to festivals. He was on staff at the medical school of the University of Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Hospital, and Presbyterian Medical Center, where he was chief of internal medicine from 1952 to 1961. Elizabeth Head Fetter, also known as Hannah Lees, has pretty much been forgotten today. At a time when women are looking for feminist heroes of an earlier year, I find this rather remarkable. Her magazine articles alone are enough to fill a few volumes, and her books are still available from online booksellers. I hope this mini-biography will revive people's interest in her. Elizabeth Hedfetter, a.k.a. Hannah Lees. March edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories. I will tell you the history of the Shipley School. It's a college preparatory institute for girls and women founded by three rather remarkable sisters, Hannah, Elizabeth, and Catherine Shipley. They're all interred in the same plot 
at Laurel Hill West. Look for that. The title will be Courage for the Deed, Grace for the Doing. That is the motto of Shipley School, and that should be available on March 15th. The April edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories enters into the realm of white-collar crime. John Edward Attucks, whose nickname was literally Gas Attucks, made a fortune in the fuel industry, but he spent much of it trying to purchase a seat in the United States Senate. He failed. Guest speaker and fellow Laurel Hill tour guide Tom Keels will tell us of Samuel Stars and Stripes Ashbridge, a man who reached the pinnacle of being declared the most corrupt mayor in Philadelphia history. And that is saying something. And I will tell you about Joseph Miller Houston, a brilliant architect. He built the Pennsylvania State Capitol Building, the Witherspoon Building in Center City, his gorgeous home of Oaks Cloisters in Germantown. But he spent time in Eastern State Penitentiary for fraud. These are three fascinating characters, white-collar crime, in the April edition of All Bones Considered. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It really is an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, and there is some parking in the lot across the street, although spaces are very limited. There's an app that you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood. There's parking at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue, which is being rebuilt right now, by the way. I transferred there a couple of nights ago, and I can see some progress in the construction. Then you cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge and come up Writers Ferry Road, and there's an entrance right by the Pet Cemetery. You can download a tour that I've recorded going from both Pencoid to the Barmouth train station at the Kinwid Heritage Trail, and then another one that leads you from the Barmouth entrance down to Pencoid. Each of these is a 40 to 45 minute audio tour that talks about the people that are interred along the route through the cemetery. They take a little longer than that because you want to stop and look in the mausoleums. But if you want to spend a nice two hours, download both of these and listen to them, one in one direction, the other coming back. You will learn about, I'm going to estimate 80 to 100 people that I talked about in those two audio descriptions. Reminder, both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are going to be open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. once the time changes. For now, they still close at 5 p.m. We welcome dog walkers, bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West give frequent historic tours. There's still an occasional pay-what-you-wish virtual tour via Zoom. Find out more, laurelhillphl.com. 
Plus, if you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. You can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook. And once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, please become a friend of Laurel Hill. You'll have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits and at least two annual members-only podcasts of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories. As we like to say, they may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. The key to finding the gift shop online is, remember, if you're a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill, you get a 10% discount at the gift shop, is click on support and then find the gift shop in the left-hand column. Our theme song, Names at Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University, who reminds you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. You can contact me, joe at joelex.net. Stick around and you will hear the references that I used for this podcast. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. For the information on Dr. Nellie Nielsen, I had several sources. The American Historical Association, 1884 to 1984, Retrospect and Prospect by Arthur S. Link gave the history of the organization. It's from the American Historical Review, February 1985, volume 90, number 1, pages 1 through 17. There's an article called Two Distinguished Medievalists, Nellie Nielsen and Bertha Putnam. The authors on that are Margaret Hastings and Elizabeth G. Kimball. That was in the Journal of British Studies, Spring 1979, Volume 18, Number 2, pages 142 to 159. History and Difference by Joan W. Scott. That was in a special Daedalus issue, Fall of 1987, Volume 116, Number 4. Uh, the issue was called Learning About Women, Gender, Politics, and Power pages 93 to 118. Medievalism and Feminism by Judith M. Bennett, Speculum, April 1993, volume 68, number 2, pages 309 to 331. It's published by the University of Chicago Press on behalf of the Medieval Academy of America. And finally, The Enigma of Mount Holyoke's Nellie Nielsen. That was written by Gerald Vaughn in the Historical Journal of Massachusetts, volume 28, number 2, from the summer of 2000, published by the Institute for Massachusetts Studies and Westfield State University. For Hannah Lees, it was mostly newspaper articles. The article from Hygieia can be found online. It's in a rather thick PDF for the entire year of 1943. Hygieia, the Health Magazine, 535 North Dearborn Street, Chicago 10, Illinois. 
Her article starts on page 359. There's a newspaper article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, 15 January 1950, called She Leads a Double Life. Talks about her authorship and also the political work that she's getting into. And then, of course, Till the Boys Come Home, Hannah Lee's Harper and Brothers. This is copyright 1944. It's a, it's a good read. It's a fun read. But it is totally different from what you might expect from a 1944 novel. I'm pleased to say that on the back it tells you to buy war bonds. Uh, <laughs> so that's a guarantee that it's an old book. And there is a picture of Hannah Lee's, or Elizabeth Fetter, I should call her, Elizabeth Head Fetter staring at you from the flyleaf. And she does have an intense stare with those dark eyes. I am going to let Pat Rose tell you about the references she used for Sarah York Stevenson, because her story is almost as interesting as the podcast itself. I was fortunate to be able to access Stevenson's papers, and the story of their discovery is an interesting one. In 1922, the Civic Club published their own pamphlet commemorating Sarah York Stevenson, including a lengthy biographical essay by Stevenson's good friend, Francis Ann Wister, buried at Laurel Hill East, Section M, Plot 128. I assume Wister got access to Stevenson's private papers to provide background information on her subject's life. By the time she finished with them, Stevenson's immediate family had all died. Cornelius, her husband, who had been badly injured after being hit by a taxi in the summer of 1921, died in August 1922. York Stevenson, her only son, died in April 1922. Both are buried with Sarah in Section T, Plots 191-95. York's wife, Christine Wetherill Stevenson, buried in the chapel section, Plot 5, died in November 1922. So Frances Ann Wister kept the papers. In 2006, 50 years after Frances Ann died, Wister descendants were cleaning out a house in Center City when boxes of Stevenson's papers were found in the attic in disarray. They were donated to LaSalle University where the Wister papers are housed. LaSalle subsequently donated some of the papers to the Penn Museum. I visited the special collections section of the LaSalle Library and the Penn Museum archives and explored these papers, which provide a much fuller and richer picture of Sarah York Stevenson. I'm grateful to the librarians and archivists at both institutions. I found a number of Stevenson's own writings on the Internet Archive, including Maximilian in Mexico, her monograph on Egyptian symbols, her articles in the Bulletin of the Pennsylvania Museum, and her talks read at the Oriental Society. Also on the Internet Archive, John Wolfe Jordan's Colonial Families of Philadelphia, 1911, has good information on both the York and Stevenson families. Other valuable sources are Barbara Lesko's article on Sarah on the website Breaking Ground, Women in Old World Archaeology, and Ellen Danyon and Eleanor King's article Unsung Visionary, Sarah York Stevenson and the Development of Archaeology in Philadelphia in Don Fowler and David Wilcox's volume Philadelphia and the Development of Americanist Archaeology, 
2003. Several articles with information on Sarah appeared in the Penn Museum publication Expedition Magazine. David O'Connor, The University Museum in Egypt, 1979, Volume 21, Number 2. Alexandra Fleischmann, William Archaeologist in the Early Days of the Museum, 2013, Volume 54, Number 3. Pen in the World, 12 Decades at the University of Pennsylvania Museum by Ann Blair Brownlee and David Brownlee, 2008, Volume 50, Number 1. For the Hilprecht Affair, I read Robert Osterhout's John Henry Haynes, a photographer and archaeologist in the Ottoman Empire, 1881 to 1900, which appeared in 2016. For background on museums, Stephen Kahn, Museums and American Intellectual Life, 1876 to 1926, which was published in 1998. Stevenson's obituary appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer, November 15, 1921. Incredibly useful were the memorial pamphlets, the 1922 pamphlet, including the addresses from the memorial service, and the Civic Club's pamphlet with biographical essay by Francis Wister and edited by Owen Wister.